Welcome to Radio Who, What, Why. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you're following or trying to follow the Trump-Russia story, no doubt your head is filled with dozens of threads. The Trump Tower meetings, the dossier, the names of countless Russians, mobsters and oligarchs and bankers, banks in Germany, in Moscow, Cyprus, in Moldavia. Money laundering, real estate deals, hedge funds, indictments, bankruptcies, and a cast of characters orbiting Trump that feels more like the bar scene in the original Star Wars. How is it possible then to understand it all, especially if, as Steve Bannon told Michael Wolff, it's all about following the money? We can all imagine some kind of huge whiteboard or bulletin board in Mueller's office with arrows and pictures and bank logos and lines and threads connecting them all together. Over the course of the past week, Who, What, Why has published a multi-part series entitled Deutsche Bank, a global bank for oligarchs, Americans, and Russians by Martin Scheel, a retired branch chief of the IRS Criminal Investigation Division. His Who, What, Why series could easily be seen as part of a preamble or executive summary to the report that Mueller may ultimately deliver to Congress. It is my pleasure to be joined here by Martin Shield to talk about this story, Deutsche Bank, a global bank for oligarchs, American and Russian. Martin Shield, thanks so much for joining us on Radio Who, What, Why. Thanks for having me, Jeff. It's, uh, it's a real pleasure and honor to uh, be on your uh, podcast. I want to begin by talking a little bit about Deutsche Bank as the link that ties so many of these pieces together, and just a little bit about its history. Yeah, well, well, Deutsche Bank is uh, it's a huge bank. It's a it's a global bank, but its uh, headquarters are in Frankfurt, Germany. Uh, it, its philosophy really is to uh, going all the way back into uh, the 19th century is to um, generate uh, in foreign investment in uh, Europe uh, and surrounding countries and 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 globally. It uh, really made its uh, first forays into uh, the United States around 1998. Um, And uh, they took over a bank in New York called Bankers Trust, which is a well-known bank in the New York financial circles. The marching orders of the bankers in New York was to uh, generate revenues and generate fees. You know, they wanted... uh, to grow the bank uh, quickly, and and um, they wanted to grow the profits uh, just as fast. So um, those are the marching orders. And so to do that in, in, in financial circles and banking circles, what that really means is that uh, you have to take on uh, risk. And so, of course, who is one of the riskiest uh, investments uh, you could take on if you're in New York uh, in the late 90s? Well, Donald J. Trump. Before, yeah, before we get to Trump, how was the attitude, the business policy of Deutsche Bank fundamentally different from so many of the other international banks that were trying to grow during that period, whether it was banks like HSBC or BNP, foreign banks based in, in, in European countries that, that in fact didn't take the same path. What is it that the business decisions that Deutsche Bank made that set it on the road to the reason that we're talking about it today? The object of the company was to transact banking business of all kinds, in particular to promote and facilitate trade relations between Germany, other European countries, and overseas markets. So 
that's basically what they decided to do. They decided to basically um, sprout their wings, spread their branches, and um, they did. And and the timing was right for them. Um, several other uh, European banks also uh, did that. But what I think differentiates Deutsche Bank was they were in hot pursuit of earnings. They wanted to grow as quickly as they could, um, and uh, they did. Their risk management, let's just say, wasn't very good. Uh, and something I wanted to point out as we get into Deutsche, uh, Deutsche Bank, some of their philosophy was um, um, they didn't believe in, in autonomy as, a, as an instrument of management leadership. They were very centralized. Everything um, was directed from Frank- Frankfurt, from the top. Uh, and, you know, they, so their direction was go out, uh, make money, increase earnings. And they want they had very ambitious, uh, objectives there. And, you know, it was a big challenge for them because you have, you have different cultures. You have, you know, the American culture, the New York, uh, financial scene, uh, and then you have you, the UK, uh, was growing and the financial climate there was, was really starting to percolate because you had the European union just starting to, you know, grow. And then you had Russia coming out of the nineties, um, you know, shedding, uh, the Soviet uh, union, uh, shackles and you had capitalism just starting to take root there, but you had all sorts of things going on there too, because you had all these state-run enterprises which were now open to private enterprise and and being sold for pennies on the dollar in terms of their value. And you have these predator plutocrats coming in and and, and taking over and uh, just milking it for for all it was worth. They uh, really didn't really concern themselves very much with um, normal regulatory procedures um, and they got themselves um, in a world of hurt uh, with, you know, SEC and CFTC and, and uh, with, you know, the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, in Southern District of New York, with New York State financial folks. They got in trouble with uh, United Kingdom's financial uh, regulators. And it didn't seem to matter to these folks. I mean, they uh, were taking on uh, fines multiple billions of dollars of fines for, you know, toxic mortgage loans uh, for uh, uh, manipulation of the LIBOR, uh, which is an interest rate uh, over in the UK. They were taking on, you know, they were getting hit with millions of dollars of fines for for, uh, not maintaining their uh, anti-money laundering controls. And, and And it just didn't seem to matter. It was just a cost of doing business. None of the management executives were ever uh, ever had their feet held to the fire. They were never held accountable. You know, the um, law in Germany uh, does not allow really for the prosecution of uh, the criminal prosecution of banking executives. You know, no one in Germany banking circles has ever really gone to jail for mm-hmm. any. Uh, financial skullduggery. Martin, talk a little bit about how Deutsche Bank continued to be impacted by the financial conditions of any given time and how, in some cases, actual U.S. policy encouraged some of the nefarious practices of Deutsche Bank. So in the middle of all of that, in the early 2000s, 
Deutsche Bank was, as we said, you know, got their sunk their roots back in 1998 and started growing by leaps and bounds, taking on a huge risk in in all areas. Their mortgage loans, uh, you know, their their uh, currency manipulations, uh, you know, pretty much any area that you can think of, they took on uh, you know a lot of risk and went the uh, uh, extra mile. Um, you know, they really like pushed the boundaries, uh, and they got themselves jammed up. The regulatory authorities, in, in looking at them, uh, would uh, investigate and threaten to prosecute. And then what happened was that no one would actually individually would be held responsible, and the corporation would just get hit with a you know million or a billion dollar fine. And that didn't inhibit anyone. They just kept going. It was a cost of doing business. The only ones that suffered from that type of uh, approach would be the shareholder, you know, and the one who was investing in the bank. And these executives didn't care about the shareholders. They only cared about their own bonuses, you know. Focus a little bit on Deutsche Bank's connection to Russia and to Russians. They set up an office in Moscow. Talk a little bit about that connection. Deutsche Bank uh, had a... um, a close relation with uh, uh, a bank called VTB. I can't pronounce the Russian, Venetia uh, Quarter Bank or something like that. Uh, VTB is raw right now is probably the second largest bank over there. But um, uh, Deutsche was looking to expand, and, and the timing was right because the Russian uh, economy uh, uh, was starting to uh, take off. The uh, Oligarchs had uh, pretty much uh, started to settle down. Uh, Putin had take uh, had taken over. He became president in 2000, and he set about uh, attempting to uh, get their uh, tax authorities stabilized. And it took a while because there was a lot of corruption there. But um, the oil prices started really uh, increasing, and, and Russia is very much an oil-based economy. So there's a lot of money to be made over there, and uh, The economy was flourishing. Folks were doing well. So Deutsche Bank was looking to cash in, and um, they got with VTB, uh, and the head of VTB was a guy by the name of uh, Andre Kostin, who was uh, alleged to be ex-KGB. And as uh, Putin once famously said, uh, there is no such thing as ex-KGB. Once KGB, always KGB. And the thing about uh, Russian banks is that they're just dominated by uh, KGB and, and FSB uh, intelligence officers. FSB took over for KGB. Anyway, uh, Kostin was the head of VTB uh, and, you know, very tight with Putin. Kostin, you know, Deutsche approaches Kostin and says, look, we'd like to uh, set up some offices here and expand and get Deutsche rolling uh, uh what do you think? And, and Kostin said, yeah, yeah, let's work together. And says, hey, by the way, uh, why don't you hire my son to uh, head up your uh, the Deutsche Bank office here in, in Moscow? So, okay, uh, Deutsche agreed to do that. And Andre Kostin became the head of uh, Deutsche Bank Moscow. Well, he brought in uh, some folks uh, that were closely related to Kostin and to Putin and to uh, called FOB, Friends of Putin. Suddenly, uh, revenues for um, uh, Deutsche Bank uh, just took off. You know, they, they increased two, three, four hundred percent, you know, in a short period of time. This is uh, about, uh, you know, 
the late 2000s, let's say uh, 2006, 2007 area. Uh, and one of the things that was going on, a lot of the Russians who had made a lot of money uh, were concerned. It was a little bit like the Wild West over there in that, you know, you had some corrupt authorities and you had uh, Russian organized crime uh, was very prominent. And uh, so folks who had made some money were concerned. Uh, they didn't, And they also didn't particularly like paying taxes, very similar to uh, wealthy Americans and Europeans. And, and they were looking to move their money out of Russia. And so money laundering uh, was uh, a big deal over there. And I must say, uh, having investigated money laundering for decades, uh, the Russians are the best at it. Explain why it was so important, given the state of the Russian economy, why was it so important to move money out of the country? Why was money laundering such a critical business with respect to Russia? These oligarchs, uh, there, and there's about, at the time, about 200 of them that really controlled uh, most of the economy. I mean, uh, they controlled mm, 75, 80 percent of, of the economy. And a lot of that is oil-related uh, or mineral-related. Uh, they were concerned. They wanted to safeguard their money, they, and they were never sure how long they were going to be um, retain their oligarchical power because so much of their power and their wealth depended on their relationship with Putin and um, those immediately around Putin. Putin, um, uh, his chief of staff was a guy by the name of Igor Sechin, uh, who went on to become the CEO of Rosneft, which is the largest oil company in Russia. Sechin was uh, uh, in charge of what's known as the Siloviki. Uh, Siloviki is a Russian for, well, a little translation is structured force. But essentially what it is, is in, in America, we would refer to it in mafia terms, muscle. Uh, Siloviki equals muscle. So, so if Putin, Putin wasn't happy with an oligarch, he would sick Sessions Siloviki on that particular oligarch, and they would just seize the industry or the company and uh, throw the oligarch in jail. And this is what they did with Mikhail Khodorkovsky, uh, who was uh, the head of uh, Yukos Oil, which was the largest uh, oil company at the time. And Putin viewed Khodorkovsky as, uh, as a competitor, as a rival, as a threat. And so when Putin came in power, became president in 2000, one of the first things he did was just uh, put Khodorkovsky in, in his place uh, and threw him in jail seized his company and, and chopped it up and, and uh, took what he wanted from it. That set uh, a real lesson to all the other oligarchs. They looked around and they saw, if you can do that to Khodorkovsky, <laughs> you can do it to us. So, you know, they started, uh, you know, trying to get their, what monies they had in, in, uh, in their banks. And, and in Russia at the time, there were a lot of little banks. They were known as pocket banks because they were, in the pocket of the particular industry that the oligarchs would control, whether it was aluminum or uh, you know oil or whatever. So uh, these banks, you know, are not real banks as we understand them. They're more like, you know, uh, you know, like piggy banks or you know uh, that kind of thing. So they would come and go. But anyway, the Russian oligarchs decided, well, it's time we need to get a move our money out of here because what happened to Khodorkovsky could happen to me. So they started. Um, 
doing very complex uh, maneuvers to move it into a large Russian bank that had a correspondent bank relation with uh, banks in Moldova and Latvia. And and from there, once you got it into Latvia, uh, you could then move it uh, into the European Union. Uh, you could move it to the UK. And from the UK, you could go to the British Virgin Islands, Cyprus, or wherever. And they'd use all these shell accounts, masking uh, the identity, the source of ownership. And, you know, they would... Um, uh, buy up, uh, make investments in restaurants or, or athletic teams like, uh, you know, soccer teams, uh, famous soccer teams, basketball teams, hockey teams, whatever. They'd also buy huge yachts, et cetera. And uh, ultimately, they would end up buying um, real estate, uh, either commercial real estate or, or luxury condos in places like London and Manhattan. And they would always buy them in shell company names, uh, uh, the anonymity of real estate purchases uh, that American and UK laws afforded was uh, fully taken advantage of by these oligarchs. When you get to around 2010, um, the Russian laundromat was basically cracked down uh, the Moldovan banks. Uh, that that particular method of money laundering was uh, essentially stopped, and a lot of the Latvian uh, banks uh, closed up. Once this method of laundering money was shut down, what was next? There's always a new way that would come along to take care of this laundering. What was next? Another way of moving money had to be uh, devised. And one of those ways was the uh, the mirror trades, which emanated uh, from the Deutsche Moscow Bank. Um, and in very simple terms, you know, you can you know read the articles for the details, but Essentially, you're talking about an oligarch who has all sorts of, uh, uh, or a corrupt Russian official who has all sorts of accounts both in Russia and outside of Russia, and will set up, um, devise, uh, or direct various brokers. You know, there's about a dozen brokers in the Moscow area that uh, would be directed uh, to buy Russian stock for, like, let's say, Four or five million dollars buy stock in, oh, uh, you know, Rosneft or Gazprom or uh, Spurbank or whatever, and at the same time, the oligarch would then direct uh, brokers in London uh, to, uh, you know, sell stock at almost the same exact time as they're buying the three or four million dollars in Gazprom. There's the London guy is selling uh, three or four million uh, shares of. Uh, Gazprom, uh, uh, and in you know what the result of that, you know the simultaneous uh, buying and selling of the same stock for the same price was to essentially move the Russian rubles that were in hand um, to uh, London, and at the same time as you're moving it, you are converting it. The, the Russian term is convert. Um, into uh, uh, euros or dollars, whatever you uh, sold the stock for. So as these practices went on, what specifically was Deutsche Bank's role as all of these methods continued to evolve? You said, well, I mean, there's real no economic benefit or purpose to this simultaneous. Well, the oligarch has now moved his money out of Russia and converted it from rubles to euros or dollars. And Deutsche's role was they uh, get to collect fees on the trades. 
And the manager who uh, was in charge of this, a guy named Tim Wiswell, who's an American, um, and he, he was also, he got paid additional bribes to make sure uh, that no one came in uh, and, and to protect uh, the uh, traders uh, from this whole thing. And he got three or $4 million put into his uh, offshore bank accounts in British Virgin Islands. And um, this went on for uh, about four or five years, uh, from 2010 to 2014, 15 area. And um, we're talking about maybe $10, $11 billion worth of uh, money was moved from uh, Russia out of Russia uh, to the UK, and then, you know, from there could go anywhere. And that's what's known as the Russian mirror trade uh, money laundering scheme that uh, we wrote about here. You touched on this before, Martin, but were there any consequences with respect to Deutsche Bank? Did anyone care, either in the U.S. or anywhere else in the world? Now, um, the U.K. uh, financial folks uh, hit uh, Deutsche Bank with something like a $650 million fine. The New York uh, State uh, Department of Financial Services uh, hit Deutsche Bank for about a $285 million uh, fine. But, and the Department of Justice opened up a criminal investigation in the Southern District of New York with regard to Deutsche Bank and these money laundering activities because um, a lot of these uh, trades actually pass through the New York Bank in terms of the way the, the financial system is set up. And, and so that provided New York with uh, venue and jurisdiction. Now, they opened up this investigation a couple of years ago, and it's basically has just lain dormant. And I, there was a recent article um, you know, in December, uh, I think CNN put out, that uh, they had found that uh, Department of Justice money laundering section, which is located in Washington, uh, had joined the Southern District of New York's uh, prosecutor team in uh, this investigation, but uh, no one could find out just, you know, what is the status of it? And no one really knew. I mean, I want, I want to come to 1998 and the beginnings of Donald Trump's relationship with Deutsche Bank and how mm-hmm. that relationship evolved. Now, understand in terms of context that Donald Trump had uh, in the 90s had declared bankruptcy a six separate times, one half dozen financial bankruptcies, uh, many of which uh, related to the Trump casino uh, in Atlantic City, the Taj Mahal. So he was basically toxic in terms of the rest of the financial industry uh, thinking about uh, providing loans to him. He, he uh, did not have a good reputation. Uh, I want to point out a couple of things there that the uh, casinos um, uh, were well known at that time for laundering money. And, you know, the casinos, in fact, did get uh, hit by uh, Treasury Department for money laundering penalties and fines for their lack of anti-money laundering controls. Uh, And the other thing I wanted to point out was that as as they kept uh, declaring bankruptcy and uh, required them to restructure, the guy that Trump brought in to restructure uh, his organization down there was a guy named Wilbur Ross, who uh, is now uh, Secretary of Commerce. Uh, it's late 90s. Uh, Trump's uh, having a lot of difficulty with his uh, casinos. He's trying different way, uh, things, uh, but he decides to get into real estate. He wants to build uh, you know, uh, 
a building down at 40 Wall Street. Uh, he needs uh, money. The other banks in New York are uh, shying away from him. Deutsche Bank just takes over Bankers Trust. They direct their folks in New York to uh, be aggressive. And uh, being aggressive, as I mentioned earlier, means uh, taking out larger and larger risks. Your risk management controls are you know, negligible at this point. So the decision is made to uh, uh, loan uh, Mr. Trump uh, you know, uh, quite a bit of money for the 40 Wall Street. Uh, that works out fairly well. They continue to loan him money. Uh, Mr. Trump uh, builds some more. Uh, uh, Deutsche uh, loans more money to him. And it seems to be a, a good relationship. Uh, they're making money. He's making money. The uh, bankers involved are making money. They're making fees. Now, understand that this is uh, Deutsche Bank, uh, their real estate section. They're the ones that know real estate and whatnot. They're doing well with Trump. Um, but then everything's going pretty well until you get to um, the 2008 area when um, uh, Trump uh, Tower Chicago uh, uh, which required, uh, that was like about a $360 million uh, loan, uh, which was uh, $40 million of that was personally guaranteed by Trump. Now, um, Trump was having difficulty making his uh, payments, and the bank started calling in the note and, and said, hey, you know, uh, sorry, you know, we've had a good relationship, but you need to, you know, you got to make your payments, and he wasn't doing it. So they sued him. Uh, they sued him for the $40 million that he had personally guaranteed, and they took that $40 million. And so what Trump did was he countersued uh, and claimed that, uh, you know, it wasn't his fault he couldn't pay uh, the loan. It was uh, Deutsche Bank's fault for contributing to the uh, worldwide uh, global financial recession, uh, and, uh, which is just, just a crazy suit. Uh, that really turned off the uh, real estate executives associated with Deutsche Bank, uh, you know, so they decided after that suit, uh, which Trump lost, and he lost his $40 million, uh, uh that he had personally guaranteed, which he made up real quick by selling this uh, mansion down in Florida to this Russian oligarch called Rybolovov, but, uh, you know, for like a $50 million profit. But the bankers uh, at Deutsch said, uh, Donald, we're moving you over to uh, uh, the private wealth management section of Deutsche Bank, uh, and uh, Rosemary Vlabic will become your personal wealth manager. Uh, and if you want uh, more loans or anything, you deal with her. Vlabic uh, had a real estate background, and she uh, hit it off well with Trump. She was uh, eventually invited to the inauguration. She's also the wealth manager for the Kushners. Uh, and, and, of course, uh, that private wealth management section of Deutsche also caters to Russian oligarchs, which isn't real well known. But these private wealth managers are, uh, you know, they're like uh, they're like the guys down, uh, uh, you know, in, in the hotel lobby that'll uh, run around and uh, do anything you need, you know, run out and get you uh, the concierge type right. service, you know, to go out and get you, you know, the Broadway ticket, go park your car, or they'll sometimes go buy the car for you, you know, for these wealthy guys, park the yacht, whatever it is, and so. Just jumping ahead, if I was a prosecutor for a day in Southern District of New York or on Mueller's team, I would be subpoenaing uh, Rosemary Vlabic as well as the other private wealth managers uh, 
of Deutsche in New York and uh, asking to see the client list and uh, see if, uh, you know, Rosemary Vlavic had ever introduced uh, any of the oligarchs to Trump and back and forth like that. As part of your three-part series in Who, What, Why, you give a number of examples of some of the really shady practices and illegal practices in many cases that Deutsche Bank was involved in, so many of which touched on either Trump or the people around Trump. Talk a little bit about one or two of those specific examples. There was a, uh, a tax shelter promotion done uh, from 1998 to 2002 that Deutsche Bank uh, was investigated by Southern District of New York and said that, hey, uh, you've sold uh, over a thousand tax shelters to uh, several thousand people for, to the tune of close to $6 billion of uh, illegitimate tax losses. Uh, and the one percenters, you know, are looking for any reason not to pay their taxes. And if Deutsche Bank didn't provide this service, someone else would have. But in this sense, in this case, uh, Deutsche Bank got caught. Um, they got their uh, wrist slapped. The, they entered into what's known as an NPA, a non-prosecution agreement with Department of Justice, Southern District of New York, uh, where, you know, they agreed to stop selling, stop promoting these tax shelters. And uh, that if they violated this NPA, that they would be subject to prosecution. You know, the door would be reopened and they, this whole issue would be uh, revisited. The same time they were negotiating this, you know, and the negotiation took some time. They began to uh, promote um, something called basket options. Basket options um, is, is basically it's a financial instrument on the front end where it's a highly leveraged type of uh, deal where you invest uh, not only your money, but the bank's money in this case. And But the, the real key to it was on the back end of the transaction, is a tax shelter. It would provide for long-term capital gain treatment uh, in lieu of short-term capital gain treatment, which is a savings of approximately half. Now, they sold most of their basket options. I'm talking Deutsche Bank came up with these basket options. They sold most of them to a Renaissance Technology, or otherwise known as Rentech, um, uh, the co-CEO of Rentech is probably the best known person associated with, uh, Rentech his, his name is Robert Mercer. Uh, he's what I would refer to as an American oligarch because, uh, in 2016, he, uh, made political contributions of approximately $20 million. Uh, Rentech also, um, ran a company called Cambridge Analytica, which employed, um, uh, Steve Bannon, uh, Kellyanne Conway, and they were involved in in doing analytics uh, with regard to uh, uh, how to sway potential voters out in the out in the country. What exactly was Rentech, and how did it specifically benefit from Deutsche Bank? Re- Renaissance Technology is a hedge fund, second largest hedge fund in this country, and what they would do. Um, is a lot of their uh, trades were uh, computer-generated uh, based on very complex algorithms uh, devised by uh, their very highly educated folks. And they would engage in, in 
thousands, sometimes millions of trades in, inside of a couple of seconds. So that means buying and selling a financial product inside of a couple of seconds, seconds, nanoseconds even. Well, you know, to qualify for a long-term capital gain treatment, which is you know, much less than a short-term capital gain treatment tax-wise, you have to hold, uh, when you buy a, a financial instrument, you have to hold it for at least one year before you sell it. Uh, that's what's called long-term capital gain. Anything over a year is long-term. Anything under a year is short-term. Well, Renaissance technology was treating all these hundreds, thousands, sometimes millions of transactions that occurred in nanoseconds, they were treating that as if they were long-term, they were held long-term. They, they, they couldn't be a more gross violation of, of tax treatment. There's, there's no confusion as to that the, the, these, these products were held for a year. They were held for seconds. So that allowed Renaissance technology to qualify for what's uh, um, for save, a tax savings that has been uh, what's publicly been announced as $6.8 billion. I've seen other places say $7 billion of tax savings uh, were, were derived by Rentech through the use of these basket options. Now, uh, the, the U.S. Senate uh, Permanent Committee for Investigations headed by ex-Senator Carl Levin investigated this, you know, and they brought – in testimony, they brought in Deutsche Bank uh, executives, et cetera. And, um, you know, after all was said and done, Senator Levin um, uh, characterized these basket options as let's pretend basket options, basically calling them like a magical device, you know, that just magically transformed, you know, uh, uh, a sale that occurred, a buy and sell uh, transaction that occurred in seconds to something that occurred that took over a year and allowing them to take a long-term capital gain. So here you have, you know, the IRS said back in 2010, these basket options serve no economic purpose. There is nothing to them. There is no substance to it. Do not use these basket options. The, the you know, Rentech continues to use them. Rentech uh, buys at least 29 of these basket options. Deutsche Bank uh, was told back in the middle 2000s, do not sell any um, uh, tax shelters. Do not engage in any more promotion of tax shelters. And even as they're signing that agreement, they're selling these basket options to Rentech in clear violation of their non-prosecution agreement. Why did they do it? There's only one reason, and that has to do with money. They were making huge fees on the sale of these uh, basket options. Um, Southern District of New York uh, prosecuted KPMG in the mid-2000s for the sale. Uh, KPMG, of course, also one of the biggest uh, accounting firms in the country. They were selling illegal tax shelters. They got uh, prosecuted, and they entered into what's known as a deferred prosecution agreement. Of course, nobody goes to jail. But if you read the DPA, the Deferred Prosecution Agreement, uh, KPMG uh, uh, could not have uh, conducted their tax shelter scheme without uh, uh, interacting with a bank. And as it turns out, even in the indictment, the, uh, the bank that was involved was called Bank A in the indictment. 
Bank A, as it turns out, is Deutsche Bank. My feeling is that a chief executive of Deutsche Bank should be held responsible for all these financial shenanigans. Because not only were the shareholders of Deutsche Bank uh, ripped off, American taxpayers and, yeah, Russian taxpayers were ripped off. And it was done at the direction of centralized management. And centralized management, in this uh, instance, is the CEO of Deutsche Bank. Now, uh, for a good long period of time, the CEO was uh, a guy by the name of Joseph Ackerman. Joseph Ackerman uh, left in around, uh, I don't know, somewhere between 2012-2014 to become uh, uh, the president or head of uh, Bank of Cyprus, uh, which uh, is uh, a known was it's the largest bank in in, in Cyprus. Cyprus is a known uh, tax haven, uh, money laundering uh, area in the world, and a, a place where many of the Russians, uh, the, the oligarchs, and corrupt officials park a lot of their money. And in fact, Paul Manafort uh, had opened up something like fifteen accounts at the bank uh, that. Uh, preceded Bank of Cyprus. Bank of Cyprus took it over. So, uh, you know, it's it's a small world here. Uh, you have uh, wealthy folks in America, wealthy folks in the UK, and wealthy folks in Russia, uh, all benefiting from the um, financial ir- irregularities, if you want to say, or even the financial criminal conduct of uh, Deutsche Bank, who's in the pursuit of... Uh, earnings and and, uh, executive bonuses. You also have a pretty strong relationship between the Kushner family and Deutsche Bank. Oh, yeah. Uh, Kushner, uh, Kushner, even Kushner's mother has a uh, uh, account with the the private wealth uh, section of uh, Deutsche Bank. Uh, Kushner himself uh, has an open line of credit uh, to the tune of, I don't know, five to ten million dollars with Deutsche Bank, and as well as uh, Ivanka. Uh, but, you know, Kushner, uh, his company obtained uh, loans of to the tune of approximately $285 million uh, from Deutsche Bank uh, uh, one month uh, prior to the uh, November election. And this was just, this was during a period of time where uh, Deutsche Bank was negotiating, um, you know, how much of a fine they would pay on their uh the toxic mortgage loan uh, exposure they had. And, and it was $14.2 billion was the figure that uh, Southern District of New York first uh, floated. Uh, that got cut to, and literally in half, to $7 uh, billion um, uh, right after the president got elected. And this is, you know, I, perhaps it was coincidental that uh, Kushner, who also had financial issues of his own, um, perhaps it was you know just coincidental that uh, the, that Deutsche Bank gave him such a huge loan, and and that they had their uh, seven billion dollar savings on the fine. Uh, so Kushner has these loans going on. It should be noted, and I think I note that in the article, that Deutsche Bank and uh, Venetsch Econobank is a bank in, in Russia um, that Putin and the oligarchs uh, make uh, quite a bit of use of. Uh, Veb and Deutsch had a cooperation agreement. Uh, a lot of times, uh, Russian oligarchs, particularly post, you know, right around the recession time, they got overextended, 
uh, and you know Deutsche uh, made some loans, and which were in peril. Veb would come in and uh, save the day with emergency loans, bridge loans, and whatnot. Uh, so they have a long uh, history of working together. And eventually, Kushner met with the president of Veb uh, early December. And the president of Veb it was a guy named Sergei Gorkov, who is uh, ex-FSB and um, closely tied to uh, Vladimir Putin. And, you know, we don't know what was discussed there, uh, you know, but we do know that a month later, Eric Prince, who was a uh, brother of Betsy DeVos, the Secretary of Education, uh, uh, he met with some uh, Russians, uh, financiers, bankers, as, as well as uh, a sheikh from Cater. Uh, they all met out in the Seychelles Islands, which is another um, bank secrecy uh, haven. Um, and they also met with a guy uh, who heads the Russian Development uh, Fund, which is run by uh, or supervised by VEB. Both the Russian uh, Development Fund and VEB are under sanctions. So you have just one meeting after another that between members of Kushner's, uh, I should say Trump's close circle, whether it's Flynn, Kushner, Prince, and uh, folks who are under and, and institutions that are under economic sanctions. It's interesting that there's the assumption with all of this that somehow Trump is the center of this universe, but in fact, Deutsche Bank really is the center of the universe, and everything revolves around that. The Russians, Trump, right. all these other banks, I right. mean, they really are the center of this story. Deutsche is the common thread. If you want to do anything in terms of investments, uh, you know, uh, you know, tax maneuvers, um, you know, you basically need a, a big financial institution. If, if you're a, a, you know, a mover and shaker financially, you're going to have to have um, be accommodated uh, by a bank who can facilitate uh, movement of money worldwide. I mean, it's a global economy now. You 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 hit a button and you've moved money from. Um, one side of the globe to the other. Uh, so, you know, you need banks to do that. And, and, and there are banks who will, who will do anything for a price, for a fee. And, and uh, certainly Deutsche was one of those. And, and why wouldn't they? I mean, who has, no one has been prosecuted. So there's, there's no deterrence. With respect to Deutsche Bank, we know, we've certainly heard that Mueller has subpoenaed documents from Deutsche Bank. How legitimate do you think Deutsche Bank will be in providing the documentation that Mueller's people want? Uh, I, I, that's a great question. Uh, don't know. And uh, we can't even be sure that Mueller's people are the ones that subpoenaed Deutsche Bank records. And let me tell you why. You, you have um, Mueller certainly has his investigation, which emanates out of Washington, D.C., okay? But the subpoenas that I've heard about um, came uh, most recently out of the Eastern District of New York, which is Brooklyn, uh, the Department of Justice, you know, the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Eastern District. I, I don't know that that, investi that sounds like a separate investigation to me, uh, looking into uh, Kushner. Martin, we're just about out of time. If you look at the totality of this story and everything that you've written about Deutsche Bank, how would you sum this all up? My, my feeling is that Deutsche Bank um, 
has engaged in for years uh, the facilitation of tax evasion by wealthy people, whether it's facilitating money laundering and mirror trades for uh, wealthy Russian oligarchs uh, or, or by engaging in the sale and promotion of tax shelters for um, wealthy Americans. They've been uh, heavily engaged in, in doing that. That's just one more service that you know Deutsche Bank has provided with little consideration as to the fact that they may well have entered into um, tax evasion or actually committing crimes in, in, in servicing their clients. Martin Scheel, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Jeff. Anytime. Thank you. And thank you for listening and for joining us here on Radio Who, What, Why. I hope you join us next week for another Radio Who, What, Why podcast. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share and help others find it by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can also support this podcast and all the work we do by going to whowhatwhy.org forward slash donate.